Welcome to the 448th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology and coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome journalist and cultural critic Virginia Heffernan back to COVID Calls. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter, and on the COVID Calls YouTube channel, and you can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Alexander Reutberg, renowned postmodern new wave Ukrainian artist, dies. And this was written by Roman Tomotsko and appeared in the Ukrainian Weekly, August 13th, 2021. Alexander Reutberg, a postmodern artist and a leader of the Ukrainian new wave artistic movement, died August 8, 2021. His death was first reported by the Odessa Fine Arts Museum, where Mr. Reutberg was a director since 2018. He was 59. Reutberg had cancer, but did not talk publicly about his health. Only his close friends were aware of his condition. His health further deteriorated after he contracted COVID-19 in the spring of 2021. He was insistent about not going to the hospital. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky expressed his condolences to Mr. Reutberg's family, friends, and admirers of his work. In the position of the art museum director, Alexander Reutberg proved by his example that the museum could be made an art space of interest to a wide audience. You need to approach your cause with your soul and not be afraid to experiment, Mr. Zelensky wrote on his Facebook page. Alexander Reutberg was not afraid of experiments, also in his artwork. His works are full of love, thirst for life, often irony and even self-irony. The artist's death is a great loss for Ukrainian art, but he will forever remain in our hearts and his paintings in our cultural heritage, Mr. Zelensky wrote. Mr. Reutberg's works are housed in world-class museums, including the Museum of Modern Art in New York. In the second half of the 1990s, having experience in painting, curating, and video art, he moved to New York, but soon returned to Ukraine. He lived in his hometown, Odessa, in recent years, turning the local art museum into a city forum and public art space. Meanwhile, he continued to create and exhibit his works throughout Ukraine. Mr. Reutberg was born in Odessa in 1961. He graduated from the art and graphic faculty of the Odessa Pedagogical Institute and was a member of the National Union of Artists of Ukraine began his artistic career in the late 1970s in Odessa, but a new stage of his work began with the 1987 Kyiv exhibition, Youth of the Country. The political upheaval of the 1980s and 90s and the artists' experiments with style gave rise to a phenomenon of the Ukrainian New Wave, a movement which Mr. Reutberg led. He became interested in video art and created several works, one of which titled Psychedelic Invasion of the Battleship Potemkin, in the tautological hallucination of Sergei Eisenstein, was selected for entry in the main program of the Venice Biennale in 2001. It was also purchased by the Museum of Modern Art in New York. At the end of 2020, several cities in Ukraine also hosted the exhibition Chronicles of the Plague Year. 
The exhibit included nearly four dozen recent works by the artist. Mr. Reutberg said that an impetus for the project came as a result of quarantine restrictions during the pandemic. Mr. Reutberg also took part in the Revolution of Dignity in 2014, and he curated the post-revolutionary exhibition Code of Misaharia, named for the lavish mansion once owned by former Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych. On December 6, 2017, Mr. Reutberg won the competition for the position of director of the Odessa Fine Arts Museum. However, he was fired before his five-year contract expired. The Odessa Regional Council, which comprised representatives of the pro-Russian party opposition Bloc for Life, made the decision to remove the artist from his position. However, he continued to perform his duties anyway, filing an appeal in court. The dismissal caused outrage among the cultural and nonprofit sectors in Odessa. More than 1,000 people came to the rally to defend Mr. Reutberg as museum director. Eventually, the protests grew so large, the artist himself called these events the cultural maiden of modern Ukraine because it was a result of cultural concerns. Many people banded together as they had done during previous protests. A genius and a man, an extraordinary man, passed away, said Minister of Culture and Information Policy Alexander Chakinchko. I remember how we recently walked through the halls of his museum. He was inspired to talk about an exhibition of contemporary art that is about to begin, and today the great artist is no longer with us. According to friends, Mr. Reutberg had been feeling ill recently, but he had been working and dreaming of creating a contemporary art museum in Odessa. He was ill, but did not lose his strength of spirit, sense of humor, and had big plans. Not only the construction and restoration of the Odessa Fine Art Museum, he was inspired by the idea of creating a museum of contemporary art in Odessa. We all have to make his dream come true now in his memory, friends said in announcing plans for a new art museum. The obituary of Alexander Reutberg, who died in August 2021, Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and I'm delighted to bring Virginia Heffernan back to COVID calls. Let me just introduce her to you briefly. She's an accomplished journalist and cultural critic, a regular contributor to the New York Times, as well as the Wall Street Journal, Mother Jones, and Politico. She writes a regular column for Wired Magazine and the LA Times, and she is the author of Magic and Loss, The Internet as Art, which appeared in 2016 with Simon and & Schuster, and she hosts a new podcast, relatively new podcast, called This is Critical. Virginia Heffernan, welcome back to COVID Calls. Scott, I can't believe it. I feel like we might have just been in double digits of your podcast the last time we talked, and the number is so sky high. Uh, as we were saying earlier, well, to me, it feels like, you know, it's, I guess everyone feels this way, but it's been uh, almost 6 million deaths worldwide since we talked, so that's a big difference. We last talked on January 21st on COVID Calls 2021, so it's been a little mm -hmm. over a year, and at that time, I don't know how much store you put by the, by the numbers, but at least as a yardstick, there were 408,011 deaths in the U.S. at that time. Okay. Yeah, so it was, I think, yes, by then, I think my aunt, um, Hag, was in the first 
um, she in the first thousand? Um, but she was on the front page of the New York Times, like, you know, when they put they they put all those very, very short um, kind of epitaphs for people. And she was one of them. Um, Peg Laughlin. Um, yeah, who died. She died after we spoke. Hmm. She died after we spoke, actually. So now I can't remember exactly where the numbers were on that. But yes. Um, yeah, she died right around Easter. I, I, as I say, time, my t- sense of time is getting very confused. Yeah, and thank you for sharing that. And I wanted to just follow up. Do you think about that differently now than you did maybe a year ago? I've been curious how people are process deaths of a loved one at different paces, but this pandemic has its own odd pace too. Has it come back to you at various moments? You know, we went. I went to a family reunion over the summer in Maine, and it was the first time I had seen my cousins. Um, And most of my cousins, I have a big family, most of my cousins, some of them are work in public health, and most of them were masked and vaccinated, but there were some who were not, and some who were, deli- you know, had suspicions about Anthony Fauci and 5G and all the usual stuff. And so there was a strange way that that social dynamic influenced more how we spoke about her death. So another mm-hmm. uncle had died of unrelated to COVID this year. So when we talked about them, there just was, there was no kind of context that this had happened in a broader context of other deaths from this virus. You know, it was just a very, um, a very specific kind of loss. Um, And it also seemed almost too volatile a place to talk too much about it, where there were some anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers around. Um, so we spoke in broad terms about the deaths and didn't mention the cause. So that was another kind of point in the plot line about thinking about, um, deaths from COVID. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, it's, I mean, I don't know if I told you at the time, but one wonderful thing that happened during this, she was, she was 91 and, and not in great shape and in a nursing home. Um, but. Uh, I think she's going to be the only member of my family to ever get a huge, well, first of all, make the front page of the New York Times when she dies. And right. second, get a huge obituary in the Boston Globe. She lives near Boston. Um, and the reporter for that obituary actually introduced her to us in really interesting ways. I mean, everyone should have hmm. their lives reported out, you know, by a, by a professional writer of obituaries. I've done a few myself. And the intimacy you develop with the subject is enormous. And she had worked with polio victims. Uh, her brother um, mm. had died at 13 of pneumonia. Um, my grandfather had fought uh, the Spanish flu when he was in the na- a Navy doctor on the island of Bermuda. Okay. And so the family was so shaped by these various illnesses and her commitment to working with polio people. So it somehow it put her in the context of history and you really understood her kind of heroism. And I actually reached out to the writer from the Boston Globe who said mm. she had just been amazed by her. So I sort of, I like, she has a, you know, a lot of alpha male brothers and I liked telling them that they'll never get that kind of treatment <laughs> that she got. Um, so yeah, her, her intersection with history was really, was, was very interesting that way. And it did end up, kind of changing how the story of her life is told, um, which I think is you've probably found with some of these obituaries. 
Definitely so. And I think it's, you know, that detail of talking, you know, being at the family reunion. Yeah. And that the thing you couldn't discuss was the cause of death or that you were reluctant to discuss was the cause yeah. of death of a person who was, a, you know, matriarch in the family. Yeah. And that to me, it sounds like the kinds of ways people describe when a family met in the, in the middle of the AIDS crisis and mm -hmm. families, if the family was broken apart based on how they felt about that, maybe mm -hmm. they wouldn't discuss that or drug addiction, the way that's discussed today, people yep. who die of opiate, you know, overdoses. And I don't know what to make of that, except that I just find it absolutely additionally devastating yeah. that the politics have framed these deaths for some families as things you can't discuss. Yeah, you know, it's it's cause of death is a very is an interesting subject in in the media also because uh, obituaries and so I've written some for the Times, one for Mary Tyler Moore and one for Leonard Nimoy, and uh, you know because it's considered very much in the public interest, cause of death is very much in the public interest. You're not writing a, a, a you know you're not writing a eulogy for these people or a paid obituary where you use like words like passed away, right? You're not right. shying away from talking about someone's foibles. There will be an obituary of Harvey Weinstein when he dies, and it'll be right. different than the one, you know, someone who loved him would write. Um, right. And uh, and yet, I've noticed that other sources, um, you know, the Hollywood Reporter, there've been a, a, some high-profile deaths of people in their 50s, and I've seen some hesitation to talk about the cause of death, and you know, where where suicide is one that. Uh, or suicide and and AIDS, where they would give the end the end diagnosis, so died right. of pneumonia, right, instead of yeah, complications yeah, yeah. from AIDS, right. or died sometimes after a long battle battle with cancer. Like, how much do you have mm. to say? What exact organ was snuffed out? You know, in your um, in your final hours, and when people died of old age, it's sometimes hard to say. But that somehow has been an obligation of the media to determine exactly what that is. Now. With COVID, with the, you know, if the person's anti-vax, then there might be some kind of schadenfreude about the, you know, about their deaths or their, or for whatever reason, there might be some effort to cover it up. And I think newspapers have gotten very skittish about it. Um, you know, and I haven't seen the New York Times leave a cause of death blank, but I can tell you the usual way of doing things as we did with Mary Tyler Moore is you're on the phone with the family in the hospital till the last minute. You know, mm -hmm. you don't you, like these, these obituaries are news stories um, right. when they're not. And, and I've started, I, I, you know, I've been talking to some media critics, um, Jay Rosen among them about how um, there's some slide around death, like using euphemisms like passed away or passed mm -hmm. in the media is another sort of glaze that we put on these things, which are which are news stories, if they're stories about death from all of it, suicide, addiction, disease. I wanna, anyway, it uh, seems interest. It does seem interesting to me. It was great to get the facts of uh, Peg's life, uh, my aunt's life, on paper, and also um, about her death. I and mean, there was some clarity about it when it was in the newspaper. Then we had to be careful at the family event. Well, I was. Uh, I didn't anticipate we were going to talk about this, and I'm really I'm glad we are because um, it connects to something I wanted to ask you about. Your column in Wired is great, and people okay. should follow it. And you wrote a piece in the fall, 2021, titled "Why Is It So Hard to Believe in Other People's Pain?" Mm. And I see an interesting connection to what we're talking about right now. And in in that 
piece, you really talk about the difficulty that uh, it's not only Americans, but Americans particularly seem to have around talking about their own pain, but believing other people's pain. Yeah. And I'm just going to quote a sentence here. You talk about about the problem of skepticism. This is not surprising. You say skepticism about chronic conditions, including post-polio syndrome and fibromyalgia, is exceedingly common. It nearly always alienates patients, deepens their suffering, and impedes treatment. And so to me, it seems, it seems like an extension of what we were just talking about, about just talk, talk can we talk about cause of death? Mm-hmm. If, if we're pulling back in talking about the brutal honesty of this pandemic in any way, I feel like it gets wrapped up in, in these other sort of follow-on problems for people who are alive, like people who have long COVID. Yes, I think that's true. And actually another cousin of mine is suffering from long COVID and emailed, I mean, it's a very big family, um, emailed while we were there. Um, I think that that, so that piece is kind of predicated on this amazing observation by my former professor, Elaine Scarry, in her book, The Body and Pain, which is this just a point about how we come to know things that has to do with pain. She's made a study of torture and consent and other ways that language and violence interact as a way to supposedly get to the truth. And what she says is to have pain is to have certainty. To hear about pain is to have doubt. It's just it 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 it's it's such an infinitely rich observation. I mean, it belongs with anything said by Kant, and I never stopped thinking about it. Um, and I felt that I needed to write about it with this. At the same time, both sides of the equation need attention. So, the cousin of mine who's anti-vax. Um, has enormous dysphoria around this plague. And you can tell. And she and her husband and the people who doubt, um, you know, Dr. Fauci and imagine that they're being poisoned. And, you know, that is an enormous amount of disequilibrium that feels itself to have the right of way and gives rise to a kind of rigid certainty. And that, at least deserves to be treated that way, you know, as this is an art, this is an article of faith with her, the same way that my own suffering is an article of faith with me. And because I felt that I was suffering less at that time, I could at least give her a wide berth. I had no, you know, desire to talk her out of her suffering. Um, I didn't think she, she seemed at the time clear headed enough to want to discuss any of it. And I was vaccinated and masked, so I just, you know, I and I, you know, I kept my kids safe, but otherwise, I didn't think we needed to struggle for who was suffering more. So the the hysteria, the fever pitch of before the election with Q with QAnon's disinformation, just felt like that was the place I most dreaded we would get to. I mean, I didn't obviously foresee the insurrection. But I think when last we talked, I had been reading, um, you know, Procopius's account of the plague of Justinian. I just went back, like a lot of people did, to these primary texts of past plagues. And everything he wrote was, has, you know, in the, in the year 540 or whatever it was, has come to pass. 
So we have, he says, sophists and astrologers um, giving really weird accounts of where the plague came from. Um, and he said, so he talks about disinformation and then he talks about the kind of crazy tensions. I, I mean, class, class tensions, but they could, might as well be race tensions. And the reason for this, he says, is that no one can handle the idea that they are uniquely, I mean, sorry, that they are, that there's nothing unique about themselves that would make them immune to the disease. No amount of money, no gender, mm. no race, no, you know, no, no uh, perfect health practice, you know, no yogic practice, no, no taking of special supplements. None of that will keep you, make you immune to this thing. They're not people who are uniquely immune. Yeah. You know, Robert Kennedy, the anti-vaxxer says that um, black people are uniquely Im immune. You know, there's something powerfully immune about them um that too is a fiction obviously yeah. um and then the idea and and incidentally a fiction with a toxic history um you know that in philadelphia during spanish flu uh it, black was it during i should look this up but um black people were said to be immune because they had an immunity to malaria or had been subjected yeah. to malaria and so they they could they would should be forced to wait, attend to people with other diseases because they wouldn't get it. So that's one side of it. And then the other side is the Joe Rogan, you know, he says it over and over again. Look at, look at me. I'm a do mixed martial arts. I'm in the gym all the time. I can't get right. this disease. Um, and, and then also the like, it's kind of icky feeling that the cure that works for everyone also works for you. You're just a, a human among humans with this disease and with the vaccine. And that can be a crushing blow to people who are used to seeing themselves as exceptional. That's the other thing that Procopius um, noted, that it was the bodies all in heaps, rich man, poor man, all together, child, you know, the indignity of being all kind of naked and pocked together that um, was so horrible to some people. Um, and I think, you know, when you see an anti and an great galaxy mind, anti-vaxxer kind of person who's, who sees himself as exceptional, like like a Joe Rogan or a, maybe an Eric Clapton, you see that present, too. So anyway, these two things that yeah. Procopius picked on, picked up on were the things I dreaded the most. And I dreaded that I would become like that, too. I feared that I would start monitoring people who were wearing masks and not wearing masks and classify us as sharks and jets and then decide that some try to project based on what someone was wearing that they might be anti-vax or they might harbor some QAnon thoughts or they might not get the vaccine or maybe they didn't get the booster what am i doing thinking about right. this you know what am i doing having adding extra aggression and extra suffering to the already our problems are all before us we've got this plague around us that's enough and, you know, I can I can take my place among other humans and assume, you know, as this pain thing goes, that everybody has a subjectivity as large and, uh, you know, rich as my own. You know, it's but always surprising, but it's true. Like you think you had like a day and all these things going on and I have to take that on faith 
that you have your own set of suffering and your own things yeah. to say and everything else. And isn't that perpetually amazing? That, I mean, that problem is, I mean, in so many ways, it's been the nutshell of the, in a nutshell, the problem of, the, of dealing with the pandemic and seeing the failures of public health that yeah. they were so structured to think about, we're so conditioned to think about, I mean, coming back to your, you know, your article about pain and, um, when you go to the doctor, you describe your symptoms. Like you don't go in and say, um, you know, this is how you know people who experience cancer feel this way. These are, you don't come into the doctor's office and start to give aggregate statistics of a disease. They take your right. personal history, right? That's, yeah, that's how right. we, right? So there's this personal aspect to it, and that's important. Mm -hmm. But in a pandemic, it's public health that matters. That's what's going to save you are yeah. the interventions which are about masses of people. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I still, I think we're further away now than we were at the beginning on, on making some progress culturally and how to help, giving people tools to navigate through when they need to focus more on themselves as individuals. Election day. Yeah. Um, when you're in the doctor's office, one-to-one. -one, okay. Yeah. Middle of a big pandemic, put on the mask, get in line for the vaccine and support your local health office. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, I think people who, I know when I have, um, availed myself of public health systems when traveling that they just this the kind of impatience with a huge amazing list of symptoms um, I'll, I'll tell, give you one example when I was in Paris uh, 12 years ago I and there was the Legionnaire's disease Legionnaire's disease was in the air in my um, in my belt where I was staying the Airbnb and there were signs for it and I felt sick and I was pregnant, right? So I walked into an emergency room. Everyone's like in red. It's kind of dirty and whatever. And it's sort of far away because that's where my Airbnb was. And I spent a whole day of my vacation there because Legionnaire's disease, that's bad. And I was like, felt sick. And I felt sicker and sicker the longer I sat there. Anyway, finally, I got all the way up the system. And I described my situation in English and French and very concerned. And the person just said to me, tu n'es pas malade, you're not sick, done. <laughs> and I, I had Next. to just take word for it. I couldn't, get, I, there was no second opinion. And then, you know, I'd, what was the cost of that? Zero dollars and zero cents. But surprise, surprise, I actually wasn't sick and I, or I, I was and I got better. Mm. Um, but, you know, not in the US, but we, you know, we do spend a lot of time and my heart, in general, I'm sympathetic to the idea that certain people want to be heard and believed by their doctors. Um, but there's another part of this, which is that public health initiatives, even the treatment of something like Legionnaire's disease or the flu, or um, are there's not much you can do for people except what I, I talked to it on Trumpcast. I talked to my last podcast. I talked to a pediatrician early on and he said, one of the things for pediatricians is that there's not much you can tell parents to keep the kids safe, you know, or right. there are not many specific things. So it, he, he said to us talking about teenagers, but it, you know, it was like, uh, it was don't smoke, um, wear a seatbelt. You know, yeah. get the get your vaccines and and you know two other things maybe yeah. drink in moderation or whatever it was, and um and you know beyond that it's just it seems like it's kind of meddling and I, it's sort of 
I think if we really want some kind of Medicare for all, we have to understand that most of medicine is not bespoke and it's not fun and it's not about refining performance. It's just about simply, you know, keeping your lungs safe um, from a deadly disease. You know, it's like that kind of thing. Um, And, uh, and we mix it up with all kinds of wellness initiatives and performance, whatever they are, optimization, all that stuff. But I think, you know, the big lesson of this is that uh, mostly our bodies have a lot more in common than they do. Let me just take a minute and remind folks you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Virginia Heffernan today. You um, name checked Trump cast. So we don't, I don't, I just want to return to it briefly and just again, sort of thank you for that service that you did. <laughs> I'm glad that you're also have a new podcast and yes. um, I want to talk about both, but just, just for a second about Trump now that we have some distance. Yeah. How did how did Trump's reaction to the pandemic shape the culture? Which parts are gonna sh- are gonna stick over time? Do you think? Yeah. If so, I I want to bracket that just for a second to respond to something you said, which is that this is that you know public health is in worse shape than ever. Um, I do think Procopius was right that disinformation and, you know, a terrible paralyzing class anxiety um, that caused people to slice and dice groups in, a, in tons of ways did afflict us the same way it did in the year 520, 540. But I think we've seen an enormous amount of decency. And I'll just give you one example. I keep wanting to see in a headline that says, um, Wow, Americans not polarized at all. Seventy-six, seven percent of all Americans, including those who don't qualify under five, have gotten a dose of the vaccine. How did this possibly happen? We're a country in lockstep. Huh, this is crazy. More than three quarters of us. It's probably even approaching 80% by now. Instead, and then like, you know, quote after quote from someone who was like, the second I could get the vaccine, I signed up to get it. I got mine at CVS. I got mine here. Right. I got mine there. Right. Oh, another person around the country. Funny story. I ran a stoplight on the way, but the guy was, you know, but the top let me go because I was getting my vaccine. It, you know, we could be filling all of our media with yeah. stories of the what it was 70s whatever it is now percent of people and their stories of getting the vaccine and we didn't hear any of them instead we hear over and over again i mean you would think that the numbers were like 10 percent by the by the amount of attention given to people who refuse the vaccine most people of every politics of every religion of every stripe every class age went rolled up their sleeve got a shot and if we can define anti-vax as a person who hasn't had one shot of the vaccine, right? I assume, I assume you're at least somewhat 
interested in the vaccine if you've had one shot of it, right? Right. We're down to some tiny part of the population. And I, I just, so, wow, good for us. You know, good for us. We all got out there and we, you know, in huge, large part did our part. And what an amazing, resilient country we are. And then we start to hear, but we're not as good as this other country or we, but yeah. we suck because there are the Joe Rogans around. And we start to project that there are all these evil people who are trying to sustain the disease. And then we do have a problem on our hands, which is fractiousness and, you know, hatred of our fellows, which is not what should come out of this. So I really would have liked to see that story told differently. And I've been trying to do that on Twitter. Okay. As for what did Trump do? I mean, hold, there's a- hold hold that for one second. I just want yeah. to react because because your podcast in one of your episodes you do you have a great anti-vax episode and you have and you the riff that you go on there people should check it out. But you, you talk about you know what if there was this subgroup of Americans who didn't like coffee? I think that was the example. Yeah, yeah. you use and all of a sudden is every newspaper is running these stories about there's people who don't. Like yeah, it suddenly became the most newsworthy thing. But then you realize it's this incredibly small group. And in fact, the way you probably should treat them is like you like coffee. I don't know. That's weird. Like, all right. I mean, fine. Now let's move on to the next thing. I mean, it it really captured it. It just took it out of that 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 world of COVID coverage. And I don't want to because I think some news organizations have done better than others. But I'm I'm with you. Pro social and helping, unfortunately, has just not been on the front page. It hasn't been on the front page, and it and but it's been extraordinary to see. I mean, what a crazy, what a giant initiative this was to um, to lock down, to wear masks. Yeah, to, you know, yeah. the fact it was like more honored in the breach than the observance, as they say. Like, yes, the fact that we screwed it up so many times over and over. Every one of us has let our mask slide below our nose or forgotten to wear it. At, you know, when you stood up to go to the bathroom. There have been silly hair splitting, like the idea that you can't get COVID when you're sitting down. Don't understand, but you know, in a restaurant, you <laughs> right, instantly right, take it off. Right. Um, but um, but basically, imagine like from the day they shut the Colosseum and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre that had never been shut in Jerusalem to now, where my kids are still, you know, wearing masks for eight hours a day and you know, keeping staying in small pods, and they know to keep their their, their distance from people and, you know, that they carefully quarantined. Everybody knows what a quarantine is. Everybody knows how to do it. You know, that how did we change? I mean, someone, I think a critic of, uh, a critic of neoliberalism, which I guess is everyone now, but I can't remember his name, was saying, you know, they told us, we've believed for so long that this is the only way civilization can go, Western civilization or, or liberal democracies, that market capitalism is just the way. We could never be austere even for a moment. And what we showed is at least we can do things completely differently if we have to. And we did, you know, and we did. And so the fact that we could do things that differently, all of a sudden educate ourselves, comport ourselves differently, you, you know, stop flying. Uh, stop using, you know, HVAC in office buildings in the beginning and commuting in cars. Start keeping our distance from people. Doing all, stop wearing hard pants and high heels. And you know, all the other crazy things we started to do. Learn to use Zoom, forge friendships over screens. All these crazy things we learned to do show that 
if necessary, we can completely change. We have the moral imagination for it. So I think that is an amazing discovery um, that, it, you know, that this, this gave us. Uh, about how Trump, you know, fucked this up, you know, nobody wants to lay blame at his feet more than I do. But another thing I learned from Procopius is everybody like blames the leader, loves the leader, becomes fetishy mm-hmm. about the leader. And, you know, as Trump said, and as I, I don't think he was quite able to take in that he didn't cause the virus. And it's a weird thing. It's like, he sort of, he, he's such a solipsist and imagines everything is, you know, something that he does and a result of his, his heroism or his, his, um, the enormity of his mind that even he sometimes would have to say, well, you know, I didn't make this virus. And because he believes that he's responsible and takes credit for everything, um, we start to think that he caused it and he didn't, you know, and I don't know. I don't know. I want to just say everything's Trump's fault, right? Or you can say he exacerbated it and he made it worse. I don't know what you're supposed to do when a, a huge pandemic hits your country. It doesn't look like any of the great leaders of, you know, even Canada, great liberal leaders of Canada and Germany know exactly what to do either. Scandinavia seems to, you know, it, it, you know, the fact that we had the worst leader in pretty much the history, certainly the history of America, um, at, you know, at the helm can't have helped things. But I don't know. I don't know what the right thing to do here was. Yeah, he's and he's suffered a bit. I'm sure you've noticed it lately in some of his speeches where he actually talks about he tries to wade back in and take a little credit for the Operation Warp Speed, mm, which know. again which again, really shouldn't be credited to him as the research has been going on forever. But OK, the president gets credit for any initiative that starts in there. Yeah. And their time, he gets booed for suggesting. So he's found himself on the wrong side of his own narrative with this vaccine thing. And, you know, talk about pain we don't believe in. He got a horrible case of COVID. Like, it's so strange. Um, it's so strange. And often the leader, it seems like, or at least for so Procopius says, dies of dies of the plague um, and that, you know, the mask of the red death, right. is like, you know, Prospero locks yeah. up all the elites get it. Right. And a lot of elites got it. And, you know, I don't think that I would wish, I didn't wish that was pre-vaccine, you know, yeah. and still we were inclined and, you know, anybody can listen to Trumpcast and see my bona fides for Trump hating are in fact, on the other hand, like, wow, the case he had, it's still surprising he made it. And it's still surprising that he, it's still surprising to me that he made it. And I don't know if he got diminished by it, but sometimes I just think, you know, of all the wrinkles of 2020, him getting a truly horrible case and getting the retrovirals and stuff, just do you agree that was like a surreal chapter in the whole thing? Uh, to me, it felt like the Access Hollywood moment because it. Mm-hmm. I, I was like, "Oh, this changes everything." Trump, yeah, Trump got COVID and he's dying, and he's and then we we find out later he was too sick to carry his own handbag to the helicopter, and Meadows had to carry it for him, and and yeah. the stuff. It is a basic human level of men's suffering, basically live on TV, and then 
and yes, he put other people at risk enormously. I'm not excusing any of that. I'm also, I hope my bona fides are, are as clear as well. I will never be as good as you, but I'm, I'm close there. But, and then it's like, it's over. He goes back to the White House. He takes off the mask and people are like, okay, I guess. Yeah. And I felt like that it should have been a moment for enormous discussion, not only about the pandemic, but also about the the way our attention was focused in the pandemic and who it was focused on. I just I expected yeah. it to really alter a lot of things. And it just was like, Ooh. I mean, look, I, you know, I, I, I also liked the fact that 76 plus percent of us have had a vaccine shot. I also like to point out that as much as people talk, keep talking about how horrible the right is, and actually maybe this, this, something I want to talk to you about is a, a feature of trauma, but, you know, the Democrats in this country just decisively won two houses, you know, in, in 2020, they won every bit of, the, you know, two houses of the legislature and the Oval Office are, uh, you know, are democratic right now. And um, Biden decisively won, you know, we wouldn't believe the disinformation that it was even especially close, right? And all the, you know, it was the freest and fairest election in American history. Every single audit revealed only that Biden got more votes than they was originally were originally attributed right. to him. So, I it is strange that, and this is something probably you know about, but there's this line in in um, in D. W. Winnicott um, that's it's it goes something like. Sometimes the patient needs to be told that the catastrophe for fear of which he can't go on has already happened. Mm. And I think that we tend to put in the future something that's in the past because it's really hard to process that the insurrection happened. So instead of just being present to how terrifying that was, I think our brains start to be like, it's going to happen again and worse. And, and it, it still might, but it, we also need to be grieving for the now almost 6 million people who've died in the world, as opposed to um, just worrying about what's around the next corner. Um, I mean, that's something I think AOC talked about in her, in her video about trauma after, um, after January 6th is that like the traumas compound partly because you're looking for the next one. You know, yeah. you're just like the lambs are still crying. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's like the, 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 uh, the, the, um, what's it called? Silence of the lambs. Yeah, but like, yeah, it yeah. just, it feels like the thing, the bad thing is still happen happening. And, it, and, and yet we're on the other side of a bunch of things. Yeah. I think there's, a, I mean, there's, Two pieces of that to me that are really important. One is which the disaster is probably already underway before you realize yes. that it's happened. I mean, to to wake up on January sixth and somehow not realize that there had been some big problems already mm-hmm. um, in the United States, exacerbated by the pandemic, um, certainly is is to not have been part of the culture up to that moment. You know, we have this problem all the time. We talk nice. about disasters when there's this laser focus on the event and never a focus mm. on the process that's leading yes. that's, to the yeah. event. So it's a hurricane. Well, actually, it's it's climate change and it's people living on the coast. And the hurricane is an instantiation of a process. Yeah. And 
So I think about that with COVID, but still, there's a lot of research that shows us we do need these temporal breaking points. And we need them governmentally to know when to stop spending money on one thing and start spending on another thing. We yes. also need them culturally. And I wanted to ask you about yes. that, like in terms of memory work and memorialization mm. work, which is always something you think about too, like processing this loss, like how do we do it? Like, how are we going to create a space where people can say, okay, this happened, the grief. We were talking about the obituary and discovering things about your, you know, your, your aunt, for example. Yeah. That's one way. I mean, I think, I think that, um, so I, I don't know if I, t I think, I don't know if I talked to you after I burned myself. We, it had just happened when we talked. I think it you must have done happened. it in the fall of 2021. Is that when? Yes, that that's it. Too? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So for listeners, my, my, I was wearing a, like a Victorian ghost nightgown and it caught on fire in the back and burned one of my legs really badly in the back and it's fine now. But I, um, I kept going over and over in my head, you know, I kept trying to be, trying to think, I mean, first to, the reflex to assign blame like did I do it wrong with the match with the thing how did that happen my son was there you know that kind of stuff and what was kind of wonderful is that we none of us could understand how it happened so it wasn't like nobody owed me any apologies I didn't there were no self-recriminations so I put that aside but then I just kept walking through it in my head how could I have done that did I fall down fast enough? Did I do this? Did I do that? I'm an idiot. I'm not an idiot. I shouldn't have gone into the cold water. Maybe I should call a burn ward, you know, that kind of stuff. And I talked to my therapist and she said, and I wonder if, I think we might've talked about that this is a, an interesting way of processing a disaster. She had me draw it out so slowly and then pay attention to everything I had done right. So everything, the like deepest part of my brain that just is an animal that doesn't want to be burnt, you know, incinerated, right, did. And including dropping, including seeking cold water, including all these things that happened with and without, you know, my conscious decision making. Not only that, but my partner also got a blanket. I mean, we, you know, we were thinking, how did you do that so fast? Yeah. How did the blanket materialize? You know, it was like this almost magic and ever at every turn saying we are incredible just playing it over and over again we're amazing we're amazing and so scott you know you and i might do something that's just like you made it to korea you moved your whole family in the course yeah. of this you kept up covid calls all these time all this time when you'd never done a podcast before and now you've done so many and and you know you're you're you and your family are still alive um, you know, every single part of we're not the Etruscans, like it didn't wipe us out. We're still right. here on earth. Right. And that is the result of in an incalculable trillions and trillions of brilliant decisions made by us and made by the people around around us and in our world. You know, how the fuck did they make a vaccine in a year? Yeah, Perfect, right. amazing vaccine that has only been borne out as safer and more effective as time goes on. Um, I mean, I, 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 you know, everyone cautions that they might not get it done. And it was just so in a year, like how brilliant and, you know, with headwinds and, you know, 
Anthony Fauci didn't like collapse in a neurasthenic heap, even though he's been so vilified. And, you know, it's just like the number of things that went right are incredible. That I'm trying to picture how you would. So my like disaster researcher brain just goes to like, well, we need a disaster investigation, which is also involves art and involves many different kinds of ways to express and that it really slows things down and reinvestigates. And, it, and it's fascinating the way you describe it, because we would then talk about a lot of things that surprised us and that went well, and that some that worked, and then many things that's like, you know, the way health care workers stepped up, for example, yeah. and maybe it would throw into much better relief the things that didn't work. And I fall victim to this as much as anybody, mm-hmm. but sometimes we get into a narrative frame and it's really hard. Like if you're present, if I'm presented with new information that says, oh, well, this part of the government response actually was good. It's hard for me to back down from where I've already committed to the fact that the government response was terrible. Yeah. So we need a new evaluation of it, I think, to give us an opportunity for other. I mean, I'm just riffing off this, but I think we need we need other narrative options because this has been I felt like this has really been narrated now either as a it either it didn't happen or nothing to see here, move on, or it was yeah. a total failure. And it demands much more granularity than that. I want more granularity than that. Yeah, time. yeah. I, I think that that was what was so great about this therapeutic exercise was, um, hmm. you know, in an emergency, supposedly that adrenaline, and, and Elaine Scarry's written a lot about thinking in an emergency, but that adrenaline dilates time. And, you know, it really seemed to um, during the burn. and what I felt I needed to do after was revisit the time that where, you know, I went through some kind of tesseract or whatever you do, at least in my way that I was processing time so that I could be present to it. Like I think about my daughter two exactly two years ago, just a much more naive human than she is now. And, you know, she was, she was 10 and they told her they were going to close the school for two weeks. And, we said that, you know, she came to me and, and I said, you know, what do you think about this? And she said, she just said, I didn't even know she had this phrase. She just said, I'm in shock. And she was in shock that it was going to be closed for two weeks, two years later. you know, obviously it's been mostly closed for most of that time. That's right. It's now been fully, but open and with all these, you know, restrictions just for this one part of the school year. So I sort of want to revisit that time that she was in shock when the whole thing was like playing Mm. out that it could be before her and after her and how also the idea that like, well, you must go to school and you must go to school on this particular, you know, my older child has decided he wants to leave for this ranch college early because he loved being oh. in the country. Is that Deep and, Springs? Yes. Yeah. The place is awesome. Oh my gosh. He's, please keep your fingers crossed that he gets in because he's so excited about it. But, you know, all his, all these ideas opened up for him. It was like, yeah, it's very yeah. trippy, very trippy to be like, maybe I could, you know, it's this great resignation. Everyone, you know, everyone, uh, people quitting or changing jobs or moving. We bought a house in the country you know, just things that wouldn't have occurred to me when I thought that I was on like tight railroad tracks. 
Yeah. And then all of a sudden the railroad tracks break and like you have to hitchhike and you have to ride a donkey and you suddenly are like, oh, maybe I don't have to keep coloring my hair. Maybe I don't have to take Uber every day. Just, you know, certain bad habits or expensive habits that I had before it, you know? I mean, Richard, my partner, keeps joking that the beginning of the pandemic when we just, uh, you know, hunched down. But I was like, I'm making money. I never go to restaurants like it turns out. <laughs> this life was ridiculous. I was getting hair blowouts and my nails done. I mean, I haven't touched that in ages, you know. And yeah. um, and I, I nothing could have done that and opened up my mind to new possibilities like the pandemic. Like it was very boring in the beginning. And then it suddenly became just surreal. And I think we're still there, right? But the dra dragging it out and visiting like that, the kind of moment where your imagination just had this, it was like jumping the t neural tracks or something yeah. to like, there's all this other space out here. You know, like I actually like drawing. Who knew, you know? I can't tell you how many disaster researchers, like people, like this is our job I've talked to wow. who have been thrown for a loop by the temporal conditions of this, this thing. Cause we are yeah. really, you know, we're really focused. Even our whole funding mechanisms are focused on doing, doing research, which is tightly, you know, circumscribed by time and place and yeah. all of a sudden. And so like theoretically people are starting to get their mind around climate change or nuclear threat or things like that. But that's not where the research money has been, because the research money has been driven by emergency management prepared, like things government asks for and funds. Yeah, yeah. And we're like, well, yeah, I guess you could chop it up into multiple pandemics and talk about it as a series of events. But you're going to miss, as you just said, all of these other things like the early period of the pandemic where there's the sirens and there's the terror and there's people dying. And there's also I'm gardening and talking to my kids in the middle of the yeah. day, which I'd never done. Yeah, we, we don't have room for that in that kind of highly professional analysis. And that's why I guess I'm asking for an unprofessional analysis, which is necessary. Um, I don't know if you've looked. Work. I don't know if you've looked at this um, this book. Oh, maybe I don't know. I'm not sure. We have time, do we? To keep I have talking. Time. Getting, no, no, I'm good. I just want to make sure you're okay. It's getting late there. And, well, let's let's talk a few more minutes. Okay, I don't good. know if have you seen the Dawn of Everything, the David Wengro, David Graeber book at all? I have it. Yeah. It's around it, usually it's at hand. I just started it. Okay. It is well worth it. But I, I'm gonna just give it for listeners and I won't be spoiling anything for you to give it's enormously interesting. It's like Elaine Scary. It keeps uh it's infinitely rich hypothesis, which is a we have no idea, we have no clear idea about how humans are in a natural state. And in fact, there are no humans in a natural state. We've always been civilized and we've always been trying to work out civilization. Hmm. And also, too, the great thing about humans um, at every period is they're always trying to think of a different way to do things. Um, so, you know, they make the point that uh, like humans can never be likened either to bonobos, egalitarian bonobos or hierarchical chimps because like we were always doing a diversity of things. Individuals were doing all kinds of things and groups were doing all kinds of things. And so there's no, you can hit bottom and say, well, humans will always do this. You know, they, 
So that is seems very um, simple. And yet it just keeps giving me new ways of looking at um, everything. So like, there's not a natural response to a disaster. There's, but there are, there are these uniquely imaginative and, um, and uh, inventive and satirical and ironic creatures called humans who can find a different way of doing things, including my cousin who doesn't like the vaccine. You know, right. like she's just like, there's another way to live in the world and it's going to sound extraterrestrial to all these people, but I'm doing it. And, um, and, you know, there are so many different ways of organizing ourselves and we can't forget that. So the, that book has pushed me to think there's just a lot of ways of doing things. Mm. And I think an imaginative response to a disaster um, is, um, is something that, that maybe the arts can encourage and show us where we were not just like just acting on programming like animals, but we were doing these uniquely human things up to and including Joe Rogan's freaky podcast or, you know, or your wonderful podcast, you know, just, just trying, trying to find a different way or do a funeral in a way that doesn't require that you touch anyone because it's outdoors with masks. I mean, these are like, we had to reinvent, you know, so many human conventions and, and ways of ways of being. And, and, you know, we came up with some bad ideas and, and we came up with some ways of acting in lockstep with, with other people. And we came up with some great new ideas. Um, and that seems, but we sort of stayed human, you know? Mm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think we'll be investigating the cultural products of it for a long time. Um, but I don't know what to do about trauma, except to recognize that, for instance, we're talking about, okay, I know yeah. I'm sort of on a, I'm sort of on a, ray, keep, on a, keep on going. a rant right now, but I was in the New York subway the other day and, it, and, and they said two things. One, keep alert around you. If you see something, say something. Classic. Keep your mask on and make sure it doesn't fall below your nose. And what I thought was, if they just added, and don't invest in the subprime mortgage, they would be warning against the three big crises, right? Because see something, say something is, right. is a legacy of 9-11. And the mask thing is about the pandemic. And then we also had somewhere in there the financial crisis. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, what? so... But the fact is, we're always still warning against the last thing. They haven't stopped saying, see something, or we, at least in this particular millennium. Yeah. So we're talking, you're folding this, this thing. And, and there should be something that the, the, like, the, the weeping and wailing of the pandemic, the bulk of it, the terrifying part is over. You're allowed to note that it is fading, you know, that we don't have, tr- that Trump isn't the president anymore. The reason to note that is to go easy on your nervous system, but also to be alert that there is another major threat in the world right now that yeah. didn't dog us for the last two years and is now present to us. And right. we need to be present to that emergency. And namely, that's the war in Ukraine and, and the reemergence of a, like, of all things, a fucking nuclear threat. Um, I- you know, so I think the fact that you're ending this is also really, really a beautiful move to gird up our resources for the next thing, for this 
full catastrophe of life. I love your idea of the the warnings on the subway. And in fact, you know, uh, when you step off the subway still in New York, certainly in Philadelphia, you will still see the fallout shelter signs too. So in fact, oh, yes. those, those warnings have very long life sometimes. Yes. And that one is resurgent for us. All now, the and, remnants, right? All, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. It's there because you're underground. And now we're watching people on TV. They're not underground because they're worried about a nuclear attack. Well, some of them might be. They're worried about conventional attack. But that old nuclear fear, it's a separate topic. But boy, it d- dies hard. I, uh, yeah. It came back to me fast and, and hard because I have a 10-year-old son. He's like, one of my friends said this could start World War III. And I was like, do you know what that means? He's like, no, I don't know what that means. And I was like having, I had a hardcore flashback to like terror insomnia of the 1980s. Yep. Which I guess I still haven't. You're talking about trauma and the life of trauma. You know, it just, yeah. it's there. I didn't die in a nuclear attack, but I did die lots of times as a child in my, in my mind. Yes. Of a nuclear attack. Yeah, that's right. And I, you know, I had the same, this very, weird lefty education where among other things I had to write a letter to Yuri Andropov asking that my small town in New Hampshire be designated a nuclear target so we would die in the blast and not the fallout. Did he write back? Surprisingly no and I don't think he ever designated us a target site our town of 4,000 but um but yeah that was that was um yeah you know the thing I look back on is I wish that I had not it's the touchstone for when I think I should be forever vigilant about the end of liberal democracy in the West. I should be forever vigilant about a new pandemic or an asteroid hitting the earth or zombies or whatever I've decided to be, you know, vigilant about. I look back on those decades of our lives where many of us were dying in our dreams with mushroom clouds and it didn't come to pass. It didn't happen. So the fear became this kind of superstitious way of thinking, if I think through it, then maybe it won't happen. And, um, but yeah, that specter is, is up, is up again, um, with Putin's language, but, um, you know, we just have to have to take a breath and walk through it and give ourselves credit for the shock we've just come through. We should probably wrap up, but I just want to take a minute here at the end, if you don't mind. So if you've got the, this is critical podcast and I want to just ask you, um, what was missing from the culture that made you want to bring this set of discussions? Because that's what I love about your work. You're, you're really good at spotting like this discourse is happening and this discourse is happening, but somehow we don't have a bridge across them and you intervene yeah. in your written work and in your, in your podcast. <laughs> so what provoked this? I sort of realized very simply that part of the reason that we were having trouble um, telling online, telling um, truth from lies is that not that we didn't have enough experience recognizing fact, but that we couldn't recognize and enjoy fiction labeled as fiction so that when it was smuggled into us as nonfiction, right? So like, you know, it, it came to me because I was thinking after reading this MIT study about how um, much snuff and porn is in disinformation, you know, how disgusting it is and meant to trigger our sense of disgust. Um, there was a particular rumor that had been spreading that I actually, I won't even quote here because it's just such a sock to the gut and it's meant to just, you know, be hyper arousing. 
but just imagine it's sexual and dying and whatever. It's like a kind of QAnon thing. Yeah. And I thought, wow, there are just some evil people who are attracted to stories like that. Not me, right? I would never be drawn to a story like that. And then I went to watch my sort of fancy upscale show, Broadchurch, that I loved at the time on Netflix. And it's, you know, a detective story, batty British detective, love it, perfect. Well, her husband has like been sleeping with the neighbor, or, you know, raping the neighbor boy, and then he's murdered him by pushing him off a cliff, as one does in a murder mystery. And, you know, I was that that kernel of fiction was really interesting and arousing, but I could contain it in that place that those of us who read novels or like movies or like long Netflix series know the willing suspension of disbelief. It's a way to enjoy safely enjoy the kind of hyper arousal of melodrama or of, you know, violence or sexuality without suddenly thinking this is real and I need to go you know, down to the Comet Pizza shop and find Hillary Clinton and shoot her in the head, right? Right. But I thought the red states are so culturally underserved. They're not getting good fiction. They're watching a lot of reality TV, which, you know, lives in the Mm. flicker of that distinction. And that if we could attend to art made as art, fiction made as fiction, we could start to see culture before it transmogrified into politics hmm. you know cu- like if if politics are downstream from culture how about drink from upstream where the yeah. water's clearer right? right right um and so that was the that was the goal of of um of this show we just did one on uh diet culture and just how you know how how damaging the kind of purity culture around dieting is and how actually you know in in many ways terrible for our psychic and or our mental and physical health it is to to restrict food and you know instead of going for the class idea about you know the middle of the west the midwest is obese and terrible and obese people are xyz and thin cyclists are better and they are better for the environment and like they live on the coasts and we are you know whatever that is right we went for it as like, this is a cultural phenomenon where suddenly we decided we needed to shrink our bodies and it became this industry and this preoccupation. And that was just like a good way to go because, Mm -hmm. you know, if we're, if we, if there's patriarchy in place, white supremacy in place, some kind of diet culture idea in place, it hurts all of us, right? It's not like some of us are the good ones. And some of us are, or the beneficiaries right. and some of us aren't. And that's one of the things that culture, culture, I think tells us best. So that's why that's the long answer. Um, and, uh, and I just loved a lot of these shows, but I don't know if you heard the one on Yoganon. Um, no, I missed like, that one. No, it's the red pilling of yoga world. So uh. how did people who do yoga come to be anti-vax, vote for Trump, go to the insurrection? Um, and incredibly interesting guest Matthew Remsky who made the point that to me first that um if you've worked on esoteric health practices for a long time you don't like the idea that the vaccine is all it takes right or that you're because you've been sharpening the end of the pencil for so long right that you are like but I can practically levitate on the yoga mat why would I need this (laughs) why would I need a vaccine yeah right 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 well um, people can catch 
the podcast, I guess anywhere they get get podcasts, it's called This Is Critical. Yep. You can if you want to link to it on the Apple podcast app, I would love that. Um and um we'll definitely and I'd put love- that up so people can find it and people should listen and um go back occasionally and listen to the Trump cast uh episodes, I think. Um the one I did way- the one I did with you was amazing in the very in the beginning, right? Um, that was really good. And also, we had that good talk about. Uh, I mean, we talked for the Wired piece. Yeah, you want to link absolutely. to the to the Wired piece that you're in. Yeah. Well, uh, it's been. Um, this is another thing. It's hard to talk about these times. I mean, it's been really. It's been helpful for me to come into your intellectual orbit in these years and very sustaining to me and I love your work and and I would appreciate your generosity of time of coming on and and freestyle it always you're freestyling but then really it's rooted in some pretty consistent questions that you have about what our culture is doing to cope with things to manufacture meaning and I like your you know I'm glad you're reading new things about the the never-ending fascination of humans to be unique and special. I kind of like yeah. that as a as a way to come through this moment. Thank you, um, Scott, and thank you for this. I know your listeners agree, but um, you know it's just been a real real touchstone for so many of us. Um, and thank you. You were like you were like had a calling to it. I mean, I hope that doesn't sound too sentimental, but um, yeah, I appreciate it's a book that for you, and it's it's impressive and cool to watch it and be helped by it. Stay healthy, everybody. We will see you next time on COVID Calls. Thanks, Virginia. 